it's not all black and white and clear. I think for every company, it's a different journey. But I believe smart executives, and we're going to see more of this as we see more transitions to to new CEOs who are coming on board in a different era in which this is already fact. First, here is a message from the sponsor of today's episode, Mindset Shift. Have you ever told yourself, I don't think I can do this? They'll never go for it. I'm not a good enough leader. The things you tell yourself that hold you back. Imagine if you could remove all those boundaries just by holding them up and actually looking at them, figuring out where they come from and how to tackle them. A mindset shift, that's what we do. We help innovative and ambitious leaders that want to make extraordinary things happen for themselves, for their teams, for their business and for their culture. We help unlock that growth. Through actionable coaching, leadership development programs, workshops or speaking, we create foundational people over profit environments, a kind where productivity and innovation soar and culture, inclusion, equity sit at the heart of operations. If you're ready to step out of the box and take your organization to the next level, contact us today, www.mindsetshift.co.uk. Enjoy today's episode. On today's episode of Everyday Leadership, I have the pleasure of having a conversation with Judy Samuelson. And as you all know, I'm really about shifting away from the Milton Friedman way of working when it comes to culture. And one of one of my friends shared Judy's book with me. I was like, yes, someone is doing some work in this area. So I just had to reach out to her. And for those of you who know, she is the founder and executive director of the Aspen Institute Business and Society program. She's the author of Six New Rules of Business, Creating Real Value in a Changing World. How are you doing, Judy? Doing great. It's nice to be in summertime. I like the long days. Are you an early riser normally? Can you take full advantage of the whole day? Or I am. I am an early riser, although this morning I didn't get up that early. But yes, I'm an early riser, early exerciser, and established in the process of producing this book, which is my first and probably only. I learned that the only way to get it done was to become an even earlier riser. So that's what got me through it. What time were you waking up to write the book? 4.30 to 5, 5.30. Wow. I was usually writing by 5.30 in the morning. So it's a good time of the day for me. I like it. How did the um, the book come about? Because just reading it and looking at the way that it was it was written and the, the rules you've written, and actually when I look at where we are right now with the way the world currently is, this culture conversation happening with great and inclusive cultures, working from home versus hybrid. A lot of the rules that you wrote really, really resonate with this current period, even though it wasn't written for this right now. You know, the publisher that offered to publish the book, Barrett Kohler, is largely a business publisher. And there it is their belief that books are principally a platform for ideas, but that if you do it right, they should be out there for a long period of time and that you need to write in somewhat of a timeless way. So. And of course, during the last year when I was under contract to produce uh, the manuscript and then rewrites and all of that, there was a lot going on, kind of like now. But, you know, we were in the throes of the election in the United States, COVID, 
And I kept on thinking, I have to write to this moment. I have to bring these things in. And to some extent, you can't avoid it. It's just what's going on and you have to reference it. But I did find that these are, I wasn't doing a lot of research during the writing period. I had mostly drawn from stories and almost epiphanies in my own kind of travels on this road, which I've been at for decades. And so it's mostly, I think the ideas have come out of a long a lot of time to both work with and observe business and a strong belief that we need business at the table to solve and address our most complex problems because if we don't we've got more problems and less solutions and you know ignore business at your peril i sometimes say and you have to we need to engage business but it's really about the design i'm compelled more to write about the design of how decisions are made and the underlying almost DNA of business. I'm not particularly interested in the things that seem to be captured as ways of operating that have limited direct meaning for the business model itself. You know, the old, the kind of metaphor of, you know, a CSR department down the hall and around the corner that is dealing with some external demands and attempting in different ways to kind of either operate differently or to appease people with different demands of business. But I'm drawn to the boardroom. I'm drawn to the executive suite. I'm drawn to the incentive systems, the metrics and measures that are driving the behavior that we're seeing. And so over years, I kind of came to that because of seeing and living through um, moments of just incredulity that how could we be in this position? You know, when Enron blew up, you know, a company that had extraordinary market value was highly regarded when it disappeared virtually overnight and went into bankruptcy and caught everyone unaware. It was one of those moments when I write about an example of a of a story that broke into the New York Times. It was a kind of an expose on the cruise line industry, and it was targeting a particular cruise line. It doesn't really matter now which one it was talking about because the practices that they were reporting on were fairly widely uh, acknowledged throughout the industry as the story unfolded. And it was this remarkable story for me, and it really brought a lot of things together. Could I, should I tell it briefly? Is that? Yeah, let's go uh, for it. It's, it was basically that this cruise line, which, you know, part of what happens with those that are regulated, it was a Norwegian cruise line, but it's uh, operated out of Florida. And before you leave port before you leave the dock you are subject to the cruise liner is subject to an inspection to make sure that it has a proper containment system for fuel you can't just dump fuel overboard you have to be able to contain it and that also requires both more expensive to do because it makes the ship heavier and that means you're expending more energy uh, higher cost operation, but then also you have to dispose of the fuel properly when you come back to port and there are fees associated with that. So in a highly competitive industry with, um, you know, remarkably cheap uh, vacation in a way that, you know, you can fully contain five days, you know, for hundreds of dollars at times. There's a lot of incentive to keep costs low in this industry Elements of this industry were full bore to reduce costs, and, and it was a common practice to dump fuel overseas, overboard in the Caribbean and on the coastal waters of you know Florida and the like. And um, 
So this came out in a big expose that that was common practice. And I just remember going, I can't connect these dots. This is a business. It's, it's in the business of bringing people to enjoy the open sea, to enable them to, you know, enjoy the coastal waters and the, you know, pristine environment of the islands and to go scuba diving. And here we are dumping fuel that endangers the very coral reefs that are home to the sea life. I mean, it was like, it was just like one of those tilt, what is going on here? It becomes clear that this isn't somebody down, you know, there's somebody down in the bowels of the ship who is re-engineering the equipment to make sure that they don't, they can, you know, dump it overboard rather than contain it. But of course, the, the decision rules and the incentive systems and the the protocols that drive that behavior start in a very different place. And that's about shareholder privacy. And that's about, you know, a level of competition and cost reduction that just isn't sustainable. And so that was kind of one of those where I went, we have to look deeper at the system. And I continue to do that and think that that explains a lot about everything from, you know, Boeing's fall from grace to, you know, maybe Purdue and opioids. I mean, you could, you could take it a lot of ways. Valiant, you know, the company that was buying up a lot of other drug companies and then ratcheting up prices of drugs. There's a lot here to unpack, but I am very focused on the, on the purpose of the corporation and then what needs to be true to actually connect operations back to the intentions of executives. In your experience, when you worked in corporations, so either Bankers Trust or even Ford Foundation, were you seeing and observing a lot of these core principles that you're, you've talked about, or even seeing leadership done in a particular way that made you think, hmm, I'm not quite sure this is the right way of approaching things? Or did that come a lot later in your career? Well, I'll take those two. I'll make them two different stories because Bankers Trust Company, of course, is a for-profit corporation, a public public company. It was a significant bank, a re- not a retail bank. It didn't have you know, branches on corners. It wasn't well known outside of the financial services industry or the business environment. But And I was doing middle market lending, so I was lending to small mostly smaller producers of, and importers and exporters of clothing, you know, in New York City's garment center. And uh, I learned a tremendous amount from my customers and from being up close and personal to how business decisions are made. And it was a real kind of wake up, growing up experience for me to actually work in business after business school and to learn the language of business and understand value. And, but then it didn't end well. You know, I left the bank within a couple of years. It had been taken over by Deutsche Bank, and that story continues to unfold. It had, I think it had taken a step in, you know, at a time of leadership management to become more, much more about, less about serving smaller customers and had, had become more of a kind of merchant bank and was developing more of the trading and money financialization of capital became more of its mainstream business, you know, selling debt and selling, selling securities and, you know, securitizing assets in different ways. And it was the beginning of something that I just didn't really understand or care that much about. It was time for me to leave. And it ultimately didn't end well. I mean, they had their own problems and essentially were shut down. The Ford Foundation, where I went next, of course, is a nonprofit. It's a 
it is a corporation that in the nonprofit corporation sense, and it's a foundation which has its own regulations. It is the legacy of the Ford family that, you know, Henry Ford and the automobile. And so it's got a long story and that is in itself is an interesting story with, you know, good and bad and both, you know, both stories, depending on who you are and which one you want to tell. But by the time I got there, it was, it's a foundation that invests deeply in community and economic development and livelihoods and, and the elements of a healthy community, I would say. I mean, it works internationally. And I was running what today would be called the Impact Investing Program. It was called the Program Related Investments Division. And it, it was kind of a, um, a companion to the grant making divisions of the foundation supporting enterprises where they can deploy debt to good ends. So we were providing subordinated debt to enable a nonprofit that was investing in affordable housing or economic development to be able to raise capital from private institutions. We would take a subordinate position that allowed them to take on more risk. And so or take on more capital in pursuit of more risky behavior than the banks would typically enable. So that was my real opportunity to look at business from a different lens. I've been inside looking at smaller businesses and now I was seeing the, the habits and practices of larger corporations. And I had the pleasure of working with half a dozen very senior executives, CEOs of large corporations from Levi Strauss to you know Xerox and some very some men who, uh, all men, but uh, who were Chris Hogg, who was in the chairman of Reuters of the UK, was on the board and got to know him pretty well. And they started asking, why don't we talk more about business at the Ford Foundation? You know, it's like we talk about government and we talk about nonprofits and we talk about academia. And it was as if business doesn't exist, even though the legacy of the Ford Foundation, of course, was uh, was a corporation like most foundations or all foundations. That was an interesting time, and that really thrust me into more of this role of observing. What were we seeing? We were seeing companies that had extraordinary interest in the impacts of the decisions in in the sense of kind of thinking broadly and deeply about the intersection between the business and the community that hosts the business. And that was true certainly with Levi Strauss and the communities that have operated in the southeast of the United States before it went offshore. And certainly true about the banks that we were seeing that were under government regulation to put more deposits back into the communities from which they were drawing them. I remember studying the work of Bankers Trust Company. We were looking at Allstate and some interesting things they were doing in communities. And I essentially started saying, why, how do we get more of this? Is this just the force of regulation or like Nike that had, had gone deep into to kind of rectifying some of the charges of, of using child labor in their supply chain, had gone deep into kind of scrubbing that supply chain and studying new standards and protocols because they'd gotten a swift kick in the rear from NGOs. So there were different motivations, family legacy in the case of Levi Strauss. Nike in the case of, you know, pressure, external pressure. How do we raise the bar? How do we, how can we lean into this? Because these are all decisions that are available to any executive. And um, so that really set me on the track. And I ultimately left Ford to start this program at the Aspen Institute. So two different experiences in very different kinds of corporations. Yeah, I think that was what really fascinated me when I started reading a bit more into, into your story of going from what I saw as a, profit-centered business 
to a not-for-profit business. And there was very different value systems involved. And it was very interesting to see how someone, as individuals, we can adapt into environments which we used to work in one particular way, then we actually easily slipped into another one and how that aligns into our personal values. Because I saw a link between what you're doing now and a lot more with what you did at, at Ford because it is around challenging businesses and, and organizations in the way that they are approaching their people and their cultures and the way they're running their business, essentially. It's all about culture, isn't it? Companies comes in all shapes and sizes. And I, I write in the book really about how the change is, how the change is taking place. You know, what is, what is happening in this moment? But why, why am I convinced that these rules that are driving change in the business sector are already in place? This is not new ground at this point. And there are many companies we could turn to that because of their leadership or because of some external or internal agency have already operated this way for a long time, or at least in some respects operate that way. So I tend not to divide the world into good and bad. You know, I don't think of companies as having personalities. I think they have their rules and and uh, decision rules and incentives and protocols that drive good and bad results. And that's what we're aiming at. How do we build resilient, robust cultures that get the best out of people? And getting the best out of people is, is a great way to understand, to, to keep an eye both on the external as well as the internal forces. And employees are deeply connected. Internally, they're deeply connected in many respects externally. And today, the walls between the inside and the outside are not that well-defined. So I think it's a, a moment of incredible change. As we're looking at that landscape currently changing, in fact, Milton Friedman way was people of a profit. And I'm personally saying that actually the way I look at things when I forecast the next five or 10 years is actually Mr. Finner was profit of the people and people want organizations and cultures that are people of a profit. But then you now have the other side of that where organizations are saying, well, we still need to make money and that's we still need to honor our shareholders. And one thing I liked about in your book is you went a bit more into like CEO pays and how that you have a massive disparity between the way CEOs are incentivized and what they're paid. And I'm not sure you heard about um, Dan Price He's from Gravity Payments, where he took like a £1 million hit just to make sure all his employees were 70K. And he's reported in the last five years how much not only have they grown from a financial perspective, but actually people are a lot more happier, families are a lot more happier, they've had more babies, all that kind of thing. So I was interested to, to understand a bit more around that and how do you get CEOs to understand what's going on the ground with their people to create cultures that are people over profit? You know, I, it's hard to imagine the CEOs aren't paying a ton of lot, a lot more, you know, attention to this today because during COVID, well, it's, it's ongoing, right? I mean, they're having a hard time getting people to show up to work. How could you not find out why? President Biden said, pay up. You know, you want people to show up, pay up. And I think that's, Increasingly, the mantra that we're hearing, at least in the United States, about we know how to fix this and the choices reside within business to do so. You don't really need to look very far. I mean, business controls, it may not control the federal minimum wage and there may be industries that have a hard time competing if they, if they 
if they take on larger costs than their competitors, and labor is obviously the largest cost for many significant employers, but we're in a different ballgame now. And it's abundantly clear that companies that lean into the culture, that lean into the reality of how critical, but, you know, I don't like the term stakeholder because to me it becomes kind of a, it's too generic and it doesn't help, I think, business people or any of us understand exactly what we're talking about. And one thing I believe, believe deeply is that employees are not a stakeholder of the firm. They are the company. They, the company, they may not be measured as such, but if you look at what, what creates value, the re- valuation today is really the intangibles. I mean, some of them we're familiar with and have been trying to measure like intellectual property and goodwill and all of that. But it's reputation, it's trust, it's very much the ability to attract and retain the best talent. And, and yes, having the goodwill and, 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 and engage in productive workforce, those things are the value creators. And those are the things that define why one company outperforms another. So that takes us back to this is, it could just be a matter of dollars and cents. But it doesn't appear to be sufficient to wake up executives. Dan Price, you talked about Dan Price and gravity payments. You know, he had an epiphany. He was, you know, he tells a story about being in the parking lot of his company and being essentially confronted by an employee one night who, who kind of said, what are you doing here? You know, what, you know, this is not sustainable. I'm not going to make enough money. And I can't remember exactly how the conversation took place, but he learned enough to get interested And that led him to do a redesign in terms of how the profits are shared within the enterprise. This is not some, this is not rocket science. Something is amiss in public companies when what is today on average 90, 91% of profits return to shareholders through dividends and through share buybacks. Share buybacks that are often designed to pump the stock price. So shareholder primacy is alive and well. And the place to start is in the design to to kind of take seriously our intentions. You know, executives are are becoming more comfortable with speaking to these outsized issues that are of deep concern to their own employees, to talk about the state of the union, to talk about the state of communities in which they're dependent, to speak powerfully to the importance of having a secure and healthy supply chain. I mean, they they talk about these things and they increasingly are being discussed in boardrooms. We know this to be true. And the employees is, to me, is a baseline for that. You know, they this is maybe the most important piece of the puzzle. And I do believe employees, and I write a chapter about this, that basically claims that employees are the new accountability mechanism, much more so than consumers or investors who are all over the map and, you know, who want different things and consumers ultimately rebound to price and convenience. Employees are pretty steady, you know. Yes, they want a better deal. They want a better share. They want to be compensated well for the value they're creating. That is no surprise. We've always known this to be true. And in years, decades, really, of the decline of unions, we've seen witness the decline in power of unions. That is one of the things that needs to be corrected. And, you know, smart companies will do that well. Smart companies will listen to their own as 
we have seen in many, many enterprises, both those that have done this from the very outset, like a Southwest Airlines or uh, companies in the upper middle West that are known for this. You know, I mentioned I write about Herman Miller or I talk about Steelcase, you know, companies like Costco that have always paid better than their competitors. They believe that that's makes good business sense. So it's not all black and white and clear everything for every company. It's a different journey, but I believe smart executives and we're going to see more of this as we see more transitions to, to new CEOs who are coming on board in a different era in which this is already fact. And um, will we see the changes in terms of how we pay executives? Will we take stock out of the middle of the signaling and make that a add-on or a something that, yes, of course, you know, maybe an executive should should do well if the stock price does well, but it shouldn't be tied to that. And, uh, you know, it's 60, 70, 80% of the evaluation of the signal of it, you know, in, in um in CEO pay is is about the stock price. And that's, that's it doesn't make sense. You touched on a number of things there where it's people are speaking up, employees are, I'm going to say employees are hearing whether they're not listening. And the reason why I had that distinction is you're also hearing more and more of organizations where, so taking return to work and hybrid working, employees are not being consulted about what should happen next. You're having a very top-down approach where people are being told, this is what's going to happen. This is what we're going to do. And now you're seeing a pushback with people moving organizations and leaving organizations because they finally got the flexibility they've always wanted and craved. And they're not actually, not only they're being consulted, they've been then forced to do something they don't really want to do that aligns to them. I mean, in a time where productivity has increased, why would you create that inertia in your system of people pushing back against that rather than just taking the time to actually listen to what they want to do and then have that damn price approach and take action based on what your people want, as you just said, because they're your most valuable asset? I think it's more complicated than that. I'm not sure what we're measuring in this case when we're measuring the productivity has come up. I certainly personally feel that productivity is up because there's no boundaries on work anymore. I'm working more hours. I'm working twice as many hours as I was pre-COVID. There's no end to the work. It's not efficient to me to do everything online and not have colleagues that I can just drop in their office and schmooze about something. Everything has to be organized and planned and timed. And, you know, I personally believe we should be back at work. Will we be back five days a week? Hell no. You know, but there's a balancing act, and I do believe in listening to employees in this respect. But I also think we're coming through a period of we can't stop talking about mental health, and um, people are leaving in droves. I think they're leaving also because they've lost their feeling of connection to the workplace. And I think that has to do with not having been together with the people that make up the team. You know, I, 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 I think it's complicated. And I think I believe that a lot of businesses are really hard to figure this out, which is why the plans are not clear yet. There are some industries and maybe some top-down leaders who believe it should operate the way that they've been most comfortable with. I think we've seen this in some of the banks, but we've seen now another bank, you know, now headed by the first major, major multinational bank, uh, Citibank, that's headed by a woman, and she's taking a different tax. So maybe she listens differently. Maybe she's experienced it differently. Maybe she's more sensitive to the to the multiple roles that uh, 
the women always play. And uh, so that's second nature her to be able to understand that and build that into the design of how they'll go back to work. So I think it's a dynamic period. And I think there will, we'll see a lot of change in this, but I don't think it's one formula. And, and yes, we should listen to our employees. We have a project that we call Worker Voice that is underway in, in the business and society program at the Aspen Institute, which has started with a dialogue of, among 20 leaders of different kinds of organizations, not business. Some professional service firms and people who work in corporate governance from, from the outside, but principally also NGOs that work with workforce questions, labor, and who, you know, both researchers and activists, and we're mining for innovation here. We're trying to understand how, to, how, how should this happen? Dan Price apparently had no problem, you know, converting on a you know, dime and was an unusual kind of leader. He was also running a relatively small business. When you're running one that is touching tens of thousands of people, around the globe, it's a little more complicated endeavor. And, you know, getting this right is not is not perfect. I, I tell the story about the former CEO of Walmart, Lee Scott, who was CEO in 2005 when Hurricane Katrina wrecked havoc on, on the Gulf Coast. And Walmart had been under pressure for the better part of a decade from a wicked combination of labor unions and environmental organizations that had actually started collaborating to undermine Walmart's business model, make it difficult for them to expand into new parts of the country that were not as welcoming of the large big box stores that tend to uh, take out different kinds of markets. They got real good press after Hurricane Katrina hit because they immediately loaded up Walmart trucks with needed goods to reach the heart of New Orleans. And they were lined up there on Interstate 10, the major east-west thoroughfare that anybody coming from outside New Orleans would take in before you drop into the city itself. And we're waiting there for the National Guard to open up the surface streets into New Orleans after in, amid this horrendous flood and the and the after effect of, of Hurricane Katrina. And, uh, you know, virtually every paper in the country had this photo on the first page of this long line of Walmart trucks extending all the way down I-10 as far as the eye could see. And then, you know, they did. They executed against it and they, and, you know, some of them were enterprising and those who felt real agency inside Walmart stores, they were not the only enterprise that did this would, you know, make sure that the stock was used and uh, do what they could. And they got tremendous press. And he goes, how do I get more of this press rather than the press I've been getting for the last 10 years? And it started, it was an epiphany. It was a, it was a wake up call for him. And what did he do? He listened to his employees. He went on a kind of a mini listening tour saying, you know, to hear better, maybe something that you were saying, you know, listening versus hearing, you know, maybe maybe they're not the same thing. But he was he was hearing what he needed to hear to do a reset. And the company at that point engaged in a massive and long term continuing. It's still it's still unfolding today. A strong commitment to environmental sustainability within the enterprise 
And that has gradually opened up more of the questions around the labor force questions that in some respects are harder to address for a Walmart than some of these things that felt like win-win, you know, dematerialize packaging and we're going to reduce costs, you know, reduce, convert to green sources of energy and it's going to be better off for everybody. So they could do those things, but they continue to mine that deeper and deeper and the world has only gotten more complex and they're staying at it. And so I think this CEO listening is critical to driving change, but it's not that the voices haven't been speaking out. We're hearing them more clearly today. And of course, we have the power of social media and the internet, which connects employees in remarkable ways and actually increases their power, even in a period of deunionization. And that example actually reminds me of um, one of the statements from, from your book, where you said, the data alone doesn't drive change. Yes. And I think him getting that experience and seeing that um, that reputational value actually grow from him doing something so great was a great experience for him to actually get him to sit up and be like, oh, okay, I like that. Now I can do something about it. And I guess it's interesting. I'm just thinking, is it possible to expose executives to things and situations that would actually wake them up and get them to Absolutely, look at things differently? it's possible. Absolutely, it's possible. And there's a, you know, places like the Aspen Institute that are kind of in business to do that. You know, the Aspen Institute was built on, you know, a lot of the, the work that happened early on after the Institute was formed in 1949, 1950, was designed to bring business executives to the table and to kind of read the great books together to try to get at the underpinnings of democracy and capitalism and the tensions that have been playing out in some respects, you know, in terms of the design of society, you know, from the time of the Greeks, you know, so it's those kinds of experiences where you create safe spaces for business executives to listen maybe to their own peers and the experiences, the questions that they're asking. I mean, that, that is available to executives who either create it for their own ends you know, Jim Keene of Steelcase, when he became the CEO on day one, he sent all of the senior executives out to sit with people on the factory floor and to in small tables. And he he said, you're there to listen and to assure it. He said, there are only four questions you can ask. And they were basically questions that required deep listening to get the answer. And they were about an ex- a moment of exchange. And the stories that came out of that were important ones that helped set the table at Steelcase. You know, there are many examples of executives that take this take this underway. Some of the kind of trade associations in the you know industrial space from the business roundtable are showing the signs of listening differently to society the same way um, that business is listening differently, I think, to their internal agents. So all of this is possible, you know, and there are many other examples. Mark Bernalini at Aetna, who made his senior executives all read Thomas Piketty's book on the economy, you know, and, and you know, the CEO of Salesforce who found out that women didn't believe that women were actually making less than men for the same work. And once that, you know, listened, but also looked at the data in this case and, and, uh, and then, spent the money needed to make sure that that wouldn't happen again. So once you make a claim like that, who is watching most carefully are your own employees. And that's where you're, you, you can't make the kinds of statements that CEOs are making today 
without sensing what the employees, first of all, are they the key driver? And in most cases they are, but also expecting that there'll be blowback if you don't then keep your promises. What are some of the biggest fears that you have either seen or observed coming up to work that you do when it comes to leaders talking about making changes to the organizations and repositioning with some of the examples you've given so far? Biggest fears that I've seen from executives in this respect? Yeah, because to make a change in, in their culture, to even change things like executive pay and different things like that is a reshaping and reframe of the way things have been done. Shifting the focus away from shareholder wealth and shareholder generation and taking into account corporate responsibility. Again, even though it's become more and more aligned, it's still a shift for a lot of organizations that they're still making. So it's not going to come easily and there's going to be a lot of fears and apprehensions that come up. So I'm just curious to learn the work that you've done so far. What are some of those fears that do come up for leaders and how can they actually deal work through them? I mean, I think they fear for their business and I think they fear for themselves and their standing in the business. And the, the CEO pay thing is so complicated. Um, first of all, CEO pay itself is unduly complicated. CEOs, it's, it's well understood through research. The CEOs don't actually know what they're being paid themselves because it's pay is so dynamic and there's so many factors that drive, you know. And of course, we tend to focus on the, on the kind of amount as being something that is a, a you know, drives a wedge um, in trust, you know, between the trust of people in business and, and, you know, positions, CEOs being too greedy, et cetera, et cetera. You know, none of these things ba- rebound well for the CEO or for the enterprise. So the story they tell them is back to the narrative that this is how I should be paid because the rewards will come to all over time if I achieve the result that I am set out to achieve and I should be rewarded for that and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. When that's linked in stock, you know, it, the shareholders do better, but that doesn't mean that everybody does better and, and the stock is held by a very few number of people. Yes, is there 50% of Americans participate in the, in the US stock market? Yes, that's true, but you know, distribution-wise, it's intently, um, you know, it's weighted for the, you know, the top one-tenth of one percent or whatever it is. And so the question that I would ask is, is if you were going to start fresh, you, the executives, what would you be taking into account? Take out all of this crazy peer group analysis. Take out the fear that you can't recruit unless you're overpaying or you're at the top, you know, quartile. None of that is proven to be true. And the peer groups are a, you know, it's a design for pay to continue to ratchet out of sight. You know, today the executive is the executive pay continues to go up at like seven to ten percent a year. Anybody middle management on down, it's like it's been like three percent forever. And that means that that's kept pace with inflation in most years, but not much more than that. The result is a widening in inequality. I, I don't think it's just business sets that is we should be examining and we have to look at the you know infrastructure, you know, hedge, hedge funds and the financial funds and whether they're designed for 
growing inequality as well. But I do think if you if you if you had a quiet conversation with a CEO without them worrying about whether at the end it'll look like they are less worthy than their peers or that they are somehow less respected or that there is there's some issue. They don't want to send a signal that there is an issue with my leadership and that's why I'm not being paid as much. So it's a tough thing to break because if you apply that, I know it sounds ridiculous when somebody's already making $20 million a year that they care whether they're making 21 or not. But, you know, we we can all identify with that. If I'm being paid less than my peers, what is that saying about me? I would fight hard to make sure that I'm being paid what I'm what I deserve. But so this is the the system is profoundly broken. We have to approach it a different way. And so I, I have fantasies about being able to zero base the whole system. You know, we have we work with a wonderful team at Corn Ferry. And I heard, first heard this from the head of that executive comp team, Don Lohman, he says, you know, what would it look like if we could zero base the system? And I love that question because then you start to say, well, I'd be designing to achieve the kind of teamwork that we know is essential to real productivity. I'd be designing to make sure that we were thinking long-term. I'd be designing the pay to make sure that we're in a position to tackle the most immediate risks to our enterprise, but balancing that to the ones that kind of work in the larger ecosystem on which business dependent. I mean, they would design pay to be equitable inside enterprises. That They would be inclined to do that. And we, we need to re-break. We need to break the system and start fresh. So what's the closest we can do with that is hope that executives that are just entering the C-suite or newer enterprises, you know, the ones that are just now um, that are incorporating or who are beginning to go public, that they they think deeply about that at this moment. So I've got some of my faves, you know, Chobani is about to go public. It looks like, you know, this is a yogurt manufacturer. I assume you have it in the UK. It's a popular product in the United States. And the CEO is extraordinary and he gets this. I will be curious to see if his pay is designed differently than those of his peers. I tend to ask all my guests will be, what does leadership mean to you? Well, I've I've had the benefit of working for extraordinary people. I think if I, if I could speak to that, I would say uh, I expect a leader to up my game and to have my back, both. I want someone who's going to listen to me and believe me, believe in me, but also send a message when I can... I can do better and then have my back if I need to take on risks for the enterprise or personally that um, put me at risk. And I had that benefit at the Ford Foundation over for a wonderful woman named Susan Beresford who was, became the president of the Ford Foundation. And, um, you know, we took a lot of heat at Ford for working with the business sector because not everybody felt that that was a good idea. They, that somehow instead this was going to be something that would, you know, not affect the reputation of the Ford Foundation and not in a good way. And she knew, she looked beyond that. She could see this is an important institution and that these trustees were asking questions that mattered. She had my back. And so even though we got a lot of pushback for the work we started to do to work with the private sector and in partnership with the private sector, I knew I could do it with confidence because I knew that she was, her support was, was clear. 
I guess I believe as a personally that it's about figuring out what people are best equipped to do and then enabling them to kind of go forth and do it well, you know. So I think that if we had a lot of success in the business and society program, Aspen, in, in creating programs that I think are of use. I think a lot of that has been because we have had remarkable staff who have had the freedom to create and, and build new initiatives around their the things where they have their own real, real agency. I just want to say thank you very much to Julia Samuelson for her time. Make sure you go and get her book, Six New Rules of Business, Creating Real Value in a Changing World. The show notes will have her LinkedIn and other bits and pieces of information because she's such a great writer as well, as well as samples you need to the Aspen Institute. Make sure you look us up on www.mindsetshift.co.uk. We are also on Apple and Spotify and all your favorite streaming platforms. But why on those two? Make sure you just follow, you leave a review because it all makes a massive difference. Look forward to seeing you on the next episode of Everyday Leadership.